Now, it's a real, genuinely a real joy to be back with you here again in Holborn, to see many familiar faces. Um, I think it was the end of 2019 when Karas and I moved back down to Fife, and we've, we do have very fond memories of the time that we spent here, so it's very, very nice to see you all again. Can we turn this evening to Isaiah, please, and Isaiah chapter 40? Great to be able to study the Word of God together, try and understand what the Lord is saying to us from it. So Isaiah and chapter 40. What I would like to do this evening is just very briefly set the context of of the time when Isaiah was writing and what the, the purpose of his message was in chapter 40, and then just simply work down the chapter and try and understand the messages that the Lord is trying to give to us and, the, and really take something from it that will benefit us and encourage us this evening in, in, our, in our walk for the Lord. So with that in mind, let's just read the chapter together. So Isaiah and chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received of the Lord's hand double for her sins. The voice of him that cried in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And the voice said, Cry. And he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and the goodness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the Spirit of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. O Zion that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength, lift it up and do not be afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold the Lord God shall come with strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. Behold his reward is with him and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the water in the hollow of his hand and meted out heaven with a span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or being his counselor has taught him? With whom took he counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket. They are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he takes up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beasts thereof sufficient for the burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing. They are counted to him less than nothing, and vanity to whom will ye liken God? Or what in likeness will ye compare unto him? The workman melts a graven image, and the goldsmith spreads it over with gold and casts silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he has no, no, no gift offering chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. Have you not known? 
Have you not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are grasshoppers, that stretches out the heavens as a curtain, and spreads them out as a tent to dwell in, that brings the princes to nothing, and makes the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted, Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stalk shall not take root in the earth, and shall also blow. And he shall blow upon them, and they shall wither, and the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. To whom then will you liken me? Or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high. And behold, who hath created these things that bringeth out their host by number? He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might. For he that is strong in power, not one faileth. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, faints not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. He gives power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I've been spending a little bit of time in Isaiah, um, and I'll have to say, and I was discussing with Ian earlier on, it is not a straightforward book. You could spend years and years studying Isaiah and always being uncovering new, new, new lessons for yourself, new truth in there. Um, but nonetheless, it has been a, a fascinating study, just as I've tried to, to get something of the context overall of the book. And, and some have tried to, to simplify it and, and break down its structure. And I, I've struggled to do that a little bit. But one of the common ways that people look at it is there's, there's 66 chapters in Isaiah. And the first 39, there are many comparisons to the Old Testament. And in the following 27 from, from chapter 40 on, there's, there's many comparisons to the New Testament. And while I don't I don't like to, to, to bucket Isaiah into that mold. I think there are some truths and some interesting comparisons. So, for example, in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, there is a lot about Israel's failure. There is a lot about the law and Israel's rebellion, turning away from God, the, the rising Assyrian Empire, and all of the dangers that that has brought and is bringing upon the nation. The Assyrian Empire at the time was really expanding. It covered the region from Egypt across to Syria and up to modern-day Iraq. And, and from a, a physical danger perspective, the threat was there from Assyria. And from a spiritual danger, the threat was there. It was an idolatrous nation. And, they were, and, 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 and many in, in the nation were being led astray and turning to other gods. And so the first 39 chapters are a stark warning after warning of, of the danger of turning from the Lord and the prophecy, and Isaiah speaks of their exile and their captivity being taken into Babylon and ends on a really sad note with, with, with King Hezekiah in chapter 39, where you know, Hezekiah was a good king. He was. Isaiah had a number, I think he had four kings in his life, and three were good and one was bad. Maybe Manasseh was there at the end as well, that's another thing. But we know for certain that there was four kings, and, and Hezekiah was a good king. But right at the end of his life, he showed some real foolishness. 
And he invited the enemies of God into the nation and, and showed them the treasures and the riches of the nation. And Isaiah told him at that point that the nation would be taken away. There would be judgment for his failure. And so we come into chapter 40. And Isaiah is looking beyond. This, is, this was written 100 years before, roughly, that the nation was taken into Babylon. And Isaiah is looking beyond that time and seeking to give a message of hope to the people of Israel, encouragement and a day of trial. And he speaks then for the next 27 chapters, there's a real theme of, of hope and of joy and of forgiveness and salvation. Salvation runs right through the, the, the whole book of Isaiah, but there's a real emphasis on the grace of God in this latter part of Isaiah. And in chapter 40, it's really the millennial kingdom of Christ that is in view here. It's looking beyond Isaiah couldn't see the church, he couldn't see the rapture, but it's looking beyond all of that time and it is looking beyond to a period when Christ will reign in righteousness, when the trials and troubles of this world are at an end, when the enemies of the Lord have been defeated and there is one, a king of righteousness, who will reign and bring peace and prosperity and harmony and unity to a world that is broken. And so chapter 40 is a chapter of great encouragement. I was trying to think of if I could summarize chapter 40 in one word, what would it be? And the word, or the only word I could think of was rejoice. The word rejoice doesn't, it doesn't appear once in chapter 40, but that's what it's all about. It is about rejoicing. It is about this word comfort. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. So I think just as a, as a brief way to break up the section and we in no way got enough time to cover every verse in detail um, that, in the detail that is there but in verses 1 and 2 I think there is a view of we can take comfort from the work of God comfort from God's work and that work is the work of salvation Israel has received pardon for her iniquity and maybe there's a truth for us there we can take comfort in the fact that Christ has died for our sins and we have been forgiven and we have been made sons of God. We have been made heirs with God, joint heirs with Christ, that we will share in glory with him together. What a wonderful truth. We can take comfort, comfort in his work. In verses 3 down to 5, I thought it's really the coming, it's comfort from his coming and righteousness that the Messiah will come, that the mountains will be leveled, that the valleys will be exalted, that the crooked will be made straight and the rough made plain. Christ is coming. And we can take great comfort in that knowledge. In verses 6 through to 9, maybe it's the thought of comfort from his eternality and consistency, the word of God that will endure forever. In verse 9, it's comfort in worship. We can take comfort by worshiping God. It brings such great joy to our heart. We give thanks to God for who he is as a person and for all that he has done for us. In verses 10 through to 11, we can maybe see something of the comfort of God's character, the perfect balance of God and Christ in God as the one who will rule with a strong hand, but also feed his flock like a shepherd and gently lead those that are with young. That perfect balance of the Savior. Comfort in God's character. And then in verses 12 through to 25, maybe we see something of, or we can take comfort from God's attributes 
Isaiah is just bursting with energy and daring anyone to challenge God, daring anyone to come up with a reason as to why God is not supreme. And we go through his morality, his righteousness, his holiness, his wisdom, the power of his creation, the power of God's attributes. And then in the last section from verse 26 to the end, we can take comfort in renewed strength. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And so really, chapter 40 is a turning point, I feel, in the book of Isaiah. Looking beyond the captivity, a message of comfort and hope. So let's just think together for a few minutes, a few thoughts in each of these sections. So verses 1 to 2, comfort in his work. You know this word comfort? Whenever we think of comfort in our language today, it's, it's kind of a soft word. It's sort of, if someone's feeling a bit down, you sort of put an arm around their shoulder and, and try and spur them on a little bit and make them feel a bit better and not make them feel quite so sad. That's not the thought behind this word at all. The thought behind this word, one of the translations is cause to breathe again. It's got the word fort in it, come fort. And so it has the idea of strength. And so not consoling someone who's a little bit down, giving them energy and renewed purpose and zeal and strength to go on in the strength of Christ. And so it is a mess. So when I say comfort all the way down this chapter, it's not consoling. It's giving a reason to live, cause to breathe again. Comfort ye my people, speak ye comfortably. That, that expression, speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem is the idea of giving assurance of divine love. We can take strength in the fact that God has loved us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Israel had sinned. Chapter 42 references the warfare here about the battle of the spirit and the flesh and the sin that Israel had committed and and it had gone so far away from God and ignored warning after warning after warning. But our God is a gracious God. Our God is a forgiving God. And we have peace with God through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is something I think that we can take great comfort in and makes us stand apart from the people in this world. There is so much in this world to get us down, isn't there? There is so much in society that, would, that we would find that, that, that would just give us cause to get down. Economically, the situation in the country, globally, uncertainty, political, geopolitical, all of the pressures and things that could make us get very nervous, the political situation. We can rise above that. You know, at the end, in chapter 40, later on, it says, lift up your eyes. And the thought, one of the thoughts of lifting up your eyes is, having your eyes lifted out and looking upon the situation from God's perspective. And so tonight, I just want to think about it from God's perspective, that in the light of eternity, the pressures and trials that we face and we experience and we see day to day in this world are of no consequence. Our God is so much greater and more majestic than all of that. And we can find strength and we can have a cause to breathe again because of the work of God in Christ. We can find comfort in his work. Then we come on to um, verse 3 down to verse 5. And I entitled this little section, Comfort from His Coming. 
and righteousness. And really in this section, this is, this is the, the, the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was that great one who came um, to, to prophesy the coming of the Messiah. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in Luke chapter 3, we can see of the one who came baptizing and preaching repentance to the nation of Israel. And so we have the voice of him, John the Baptist, that cried in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And so the next reason to, to, to find comfort is the fact that Christ is coming again. And this world that is so full of hypocrisy and sin, that has turned its back on God, will one day bow the knee to him. Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Every valley shall be exalted. Rather, every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked places made straight and the rough places made plain. I was just trying to think, what is meant by that? Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And maybe one application you could see is, many of the nations, the place where idolatry was really at its peak was on the mountaintop. There were altars built there. There was idolatry on the mountaintop. And maybe that's just a little bit of a symbol of the proud heart of man who thought that they could do without God, do better than God. And so maybe one day when Christ will come and the mountains will be leveled, maybe that is speaking in some way of the pride of man being crushed and man being made to realize that God, the sovereign Lord, the King of kings and Lord of lords has come to reign and we have no cause for pride in ourselves. For by grace are ye saved through faith, the Bible says, and not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. We have nothing to be proud about in ourselves, And this world has completely lost all concept of that. We're actively encouraged to put forward our best self and to promote ourselves, to blow our own trumpet, to make everyone else feel a little bit unworthy of how great we are as people. We have moved so far away. James in the Bible says, humble yourself before the Lord and he shall lift you up. And whenever we get sight, whenever we get vision of our own position and own standing before God, of the one, the one who was rich that became poor for our sakes, that we through his poverty might be made rich. The fact that the God of the universe, the creator of the world came down. We have no cause for pride. We have no right to be proud. There's a poem that I love. It says this. Be still, proud heart. How can I stand and gaze upon that head so meekly bending low and not lament with tears and shame of face thy willful ways rebelling, murmuring so? Oh, for the grace in every earthly loss to bow the head to God as Christ did on the cross. Be still proud heart. One day this world will be made to realize, everyone in this world will be made to realize that Christ is supreme and God is Lord of all. But in our day-to-day -day lives, right now, 
Let's humble ourselves to God and accept and recognize the humility that the Lord Jesus Christ showed when he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So John starts off with this, every mountain being made low and the pride of man crushed one day and every valley will be exalted. Maybe the valley, David defeated Goliath in the valley. And so maybe there is a little bit of a thought of that which is weak being exalted. Maybe there's a little bit of a thought of the refresh. So at the valley where the streams were, where the pastures, where the, the flocks would, would be refreshed and take a drink and encourage them. Maybe that, that gentleness and grace and refreshing, those are the characteristics that are exalted while the pride of man is brought low. Maybe that is the thought there. And the crooked places will be made straight. Honesty will be returned one day when Christ comes to reign. We live in a dishonest, corrupt world where politicians actively try and deceive, where business leaders, where individuals, and to an extent where all of us are sometimes dishonest. One day that will be done away with. When Christ comes to reign, the crooked will be made straight and honesty will be restored and righteousness will reign. The King of grace shall come and the rough shall be made plain. All of the obstacles to God being made supreme will be flattened and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And you know the wonderful thing about the glory of the Lord being revealed? We are going to share together with Christ in that. For we have been made heirs with God, joint heirs with Christ, that we might be glorified together. What a wonderful thought. Let us all take comfort and find renewed strength and vigor in the fact that the glory of Christ we will have a share in one day when Christ comes to reign. So we can find comfort and strength in the fact that Christ is returning and that he is returning to reign. In verses 6 to 9 then, we can find comfort in the eternality of God and his consistency. All the flesh is as grass and the goodness thereof is as the flower of the field. The flower fades, the grass withers. But the word of our God shall endure forever. Last night, um, back home in Fife, we've, we've been doing a, a, a teenage outreach work. And we've been going through a, a, a series of um, discussions with them. And, and last night I was speaking at it. And we were looking at how the, the Bible came to be translated into our own language in English. How, the, how we came to be able to so freely access the Bible in our land. And it's an absolutely fascinating story of how the manuscripts were all collected and how they had to be secretly translated. There was so much opposition to the Bible being translated. And, you know, remarkable, I didn't actually know, but it was remarkable. It was actually Henry VIII, believe it or not, who at one point said, let the word go forth among the people. And he was the first monarch in Britain who sanctioned a, a Bible in English to be printed and spread out. And it, it was really from then, there was a whole series of ups and downs and and many fascinating tales of Tyndale and, and Luther and, and all the rest of it that followed. But it was really from that point that the word of God spread out. But as I was looking through the whole history of it, you realize that over the course of history, so many people have tried to stamp out 
the word of God and try to make it irrelevant, even in our day, while it is freely, while people in the West don't burn Bibles, they try and discredit it and make it of little relevance and value in our lives today. But this book, the Bible, endures forever. The word of God. It's not just the written word as well. I think there's definitely something of Christ in here who was the word um, who was the word with God and the word was God that we read in John chapter 1. But I think the word of God, the written word of God, does stand forever. And there is something of the eternality and truth. While, while this world is temporal, the Lord Jesus, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I think that is something that we can take comfort in in a world that is constantly changing, constantly changing its standards and values and the direction that we're going in. And there is so much uncertainty. We can take comfort. We can find strength and energy and take great encouragement from the fact that this book, the Bible, God's word endures forever. And we can trust it. It is reliable. It is God's way of communicating his word to us. So let us not neglect it. Let us get into its truths. Let us make a habit every single day of reading it, of studying it, of trying to understand what God is trying to tell us from it. It is the way that God has chosen to communicate his truth to us. And we live in a day and in a nation where it has never been more easy to access the word of God and study materials to understand it. Let's not neglect that. Let's try and understand more of God and Christ through his word and let it mold us and change us into what God would have us to be because we can find the direction that he wants our lives to go in. We can, we can find what his plan for us is through reading it and studying it. And let's make an effort to be at the, the gatherings of the Lord's people where it is taught and let's talk to people about it. It was always a challenge when I was younger, um, and I suppose still now, but whenever people speak at conferences of, you know, days gone by when people after a conference, the thing that they would talk about was what had been spoken about in the conference. And, and you know, I always felt the guilt and shame because so often I'd be talking about everything else after a meeting than what had been spoken on. And it was, you know, it would always hit me like a hammer blows. Oh, I've done it again. Well, it's never too late. And so let's really try and make an effort to make our lives more about this book, the Bible, which endures forever. Let's speak about it. Let's study it. Let's talk about it together. Let's not make it be a strange thing that we want to spend time chatting about the word of God together. It is a wonderful and vitally important thing to do. Let's take comfort and find strength in the eternality and consistency of God and his word a wonderful wonderful book then we come into verse 9 and in verse 9 the the title the little title i put over this verse was comfort in worship and the reason i say that is because i know in my own heart the most the, the times when i feel closest to god the times when I feel like I appreciate his son the most is when I am giving God thanks. And not even in a formal prayer sense, but just 
appreciating the fact or, or, or appreciating who God is and what he has done and what he has done for, for me as an individual and the grace and the long suffering that he shows. And so in verse 9, we are told, Zion, Jerusalem, Judah, behold your God. Meditate upon him. Worship your God. Realize who he is. Understand more about him. And so from, from worshiping, from studying Christ, from giving God thanks and appreciating him, we, can, we, 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 are, we are given that cause to breathe again. We are given that new energy. We are given that encouragement. And so in the context of the chapter, Isaiah is really saying, he's looking forward and saying to those, those three places, Zion, Jerusalem, Judah, lift up your voice, sing of the good tidings, lift up with strength, behold your God. And I was trying to, I was trying to have a think, what is the significance between those three places, Zion, Jerusalem, and Judah? Quite often Zion, there's references in the Old Testament to, to Zion being the, the the place, the center of worship, the actual temple itself within Jerusalem. In Ezekiel chapter 40, when, it's, when, when Ezekiel gets that vision of the, the millennial temple, it speaks of it being on a very high mountain over in Ezekiel chapter 40. And, and maybe, maybe here we've got Zion, get up into that high mountain. And so maybe there's a thought of the temple mount here in the millennial kingdom, that thought of Zion. And then in Jerusalem, maybe that's the thought of the city itself, Jerusalem, the city, and then we come on to Judah, and maybe, maybe that's the surrounding region round about Jerusalem. And so, I hope I'm not stretching this too much, but I kind of saw a progression there, and expanding from the center, expanding out from the place of worship. And it is definitely true that our service for God should start with worship. Before we launch ourselves into activity for God, which is all good and I would never condemn it, let it start with worship. Let it come from the right place. Let us appreciate God and Christ and let us worship together as a company. Let not, our worship doesn't have to be in the assembly gatherings. Of course it doesn't. But worship should form the central part of what binds us together as local churches, local assemblies of God's people. Because Christ is there. Because where two or three are gathered together in his name, he is there in the midst of us. What a wonderful truth. And so tomorrow morning when we gather at our various respective local assemblies of God, we are gathered together to worship him. And let that be the central focus of our life. And let our lives be centered around that, around the local assembly, the place of worship. And let our activity and lives spread out from there. And so... I hope I'm not stretching that point. I think the point is valid regardless. But we've got Zion, Jerusalem, Judah. Lift up your voice. Worship. Behold your God. Spend time beholding the Lamb of God. Then we come to verses 10, <clears throat> 10 and 11. And I thought in verses 10 and 11, we see something of the, the character of God. And I think the character of God is something that we can take immense comfort from, that can give us strength and energy, cause us to breathe again. Because here we see someone who is in perfect balance. Throughout history, all of the, the great heroes of the Bible had wonderful strengths. 
but they all had flaws. And in the same way, we have things that we are better at. There are things we struggle with less, but we are all flawed. Not so with our God, and not so with his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that King of righteousness, who will come to reign one day and fulfill this prophecy in his kingdom here on earth. Because in verse 10, we have the arm, the strong arm of the Lord. We have the reward that comes with his work. And we see something of the, the righteousness and the justice and the propriety of God. One who does not let things slide. One who is not weak. One who is firm, but fair. And that is so perfectly balanced beautifully in chapter 11. By that same one who will feed his flock like a shepherd. Gather the lambs with his arm. Carry them in his bosom. And gently lead those that are with young. I remember doing a study of John the Baptist years ago, um, who obviously is, who, who, who was speaking on these verses and prophesying in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's really interesting when, when John is executed by Herod, when he is killed, the Lord Jesus goes out into a, a quiet place alone. And he stays there for a little time. And then the people come out and they, they're trying to find the Lord Jesus. And you know what it says? It says, when Jesus came out and saw much people, he was moved with compassion toward them because they were as sheep not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And I thought that was a lovely thought. I thought, it was a, I thought it was a testimony to John the Baptist. The Lord Jesus had such an affection for John the Baptist. Greater, never greater than he has been born among women, or, or, or so the quote goes. And and the Lord Jesus had a great love and deep, deep care for John the Baptist. And I just wondered if there was something of referencing back to the ministry here in Isaiah, something of the prophecy of, or the, the, yeah, the prophecy of, of John the Baptist, speaking of that one who was like a shepherd, who had compassion, who taught those, who gently led. And right at the end of John's life, that's, that's tied to the Lord Jesus Christ there. But there's something of the perfect balance of the Lord Jesus Christ and God in these two verses. There's a hymn that I love and it says of the Lord Jesus, in perfect walk and true devotion, might and meekness intertwined, heavenly grace in every motion, lowliness in heart and mind, might and meekness intertwined. Just, that's, just, that's just a description of our Savior, isn't it? The Lord Jesus Christ, one who was not weak, but one who showed such grace. One who was all-powerful and yet held it in restraint. I love the passage in the Bible when John, sorry, not when John, when the Lord Jesus is brought before Pilate and he stands in silence before him. And Pilate says, do you not know I'm very important and powerful? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? And the Lord in such grace says, you'd have no power except it was given you from above. And standing before Pilate was the God of eternity, the creator of the universe, who could have destroyed him with no effort. And yet with such grace and such gentleness, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shears was dumb, so he opened not his mouth. And we just see 
the wonderful perfection and gentleness and balance of the Lord Jesus Christ there. Uh, I can't stop passing it by as well, but I just, in, in, in that, I always remember when I read those two verses, I'm always reminded of the Chronicles of Narnia. And when it's speaking of, um, of Aslan, and, and, and Lucy says to Mr. Beaver, if you know the story, or Lucy asks, is he safe? Speaking of, of Aslan, the great lion, is he safe? And the response goes, of course he isn't safe. He's not a tame lion, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. And I just think, I, I really enjoyed that because I think, again, it just emphasizes the perfect balance and equity and justice and gentleness that marks our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the one who will one day rule in righteousness. Comfort from God's character. Done it again with the time, but we'll, we'll keep going. In verses 12 through to 25 then, we see something of, or we can take comfort from God's attributes. And we see in verses 12 through to 14, we see the greatness of the Lord. And in verses 15 to 24, we see the weakness of man and how that is stands in such contrast to the greatness of God. So in, in verse
So we come, verses 12 and 14, the greatness of God, his attributes. In verses 15 through to um, 24, we just see the, the weakness of man and how it just stands in such contrast to the greatness of God. And so in verses 15 through to 17, maybe we can see something of, of the world and they that dwell therein. Behold, in comparison to this God, the creator of the world, the nations are as a drop in a bucket. They are counted as a very small thing. Verse 17, the nations are as nothing. They are counted to him as less than nothing and vanity. It's not saying for a second that God doesn't value this creation. Not for a second. God so loved the world, remember, and gave his son. But in comparison to God, this world is nothing. A drop in the bucket, a dribble sliding down its side, dust on the scales, the isles. I think that really is talking about the whole world, all of the islands, all that makes up the entire planet Earth is just counted as it's such a small thing compared to the greatness of God. Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor beasts thereof sufficient for the burnt offering. And so it's the picture back in Leviticus 1 of the burnt offering offered up to God of the beast or the, lamb, the, the bullock or the lamb or the, the, the turtle dove and, and the wood that stoked up the fire and that offering that was all for God. Isaiah is saying you could take every single tree from the land of Lebanon. And Lebanon at the time was famed for its forests, its mighty cedars. Solomon famously hired Hiram of Tyre to float the logs down the river to build his great palaces and the temples in Jerusalem. The great palace of the forest of Lebanon was one of the buildings that he named. And, and Isaiah said, you could take all of that and offer it to God as a burnt offering and it wouldn't even touch the sides, wouldn't touch the surface. Stands as nothing before God. Verses 18 to 22, and we don't have time to go into it, but it's there speaking, I think, of, of the religion of this world. Not of true religion, of the religion of this world, of idolatry, of people who took gold and silver and molten images and images of wood and put them up and worshipped them. And Isaiah is saying, do you not know that he that sits upon the circle of the earth, your God, it's fascinating all the discussion about the circle of the earth, don't have time again. But I think the idea is God is sitting at leisure outside of this situation. God has spread the heavens apart as a curtain and spreads it out as a tent to dwell in. God is above the situation, outside of the situation, at leisure, looking down, if you like. And I use that word leisure reverently. But, and the people on the earth are as grasshoppers. And their religion is vanity. There is no substance in it. The psalmist says of the idols of this world, they that have ears and hear not and mouths and speak not and, and noses that smell not and, and eyes that see not and so on and so forth. There is emptiness, there is vanity, there is nothing in it. Whereas our God is true and righteous and holy and worthy to be praised. And we can take great comfort and joy in knowing him as our saviour, as that one who has come down to us and revealed his son to us and has given us the opportunity to have a personal relationship with him. What a wonderful thought. Verses 24 and 23 and 24, he brings the princes to nothing. And maybe that's the thought of the government and power of our age that again thinks it is so all powerful is brought to nothing. Then we come to our, our final section and we come to verses 20. 
5 or 26 down to the end. And it is comfort from renewed strength. Comfort from renewed strength. We come to the end of this chapter and it's almost like Isaiah has been bursting with enthusiasm for the greatness of God. And because there is just so much to be thankful for and so much to encourage us and so much to cause us to breathe again. So much to cause us to be encouraged and to look beyond the trials of this world and to realize that the king is coming and that he will reign in righteousness. And so in verse 26, lift up your eyes on high and behold who has created these things. I think there's two thoughts here. One is, is very much the standing on the ground and looking up to the skies and, and beholding the stars, the expanse of heaven. I think that is directly referenced there in verse 26. And again, it's beholding his glory. But I think there is a thought as well. Quite often that expression, lift up your eyes through the Old Testament, has the thought of being lifted up. And, and, and so there's a thought of being taken out of the situation, given the macro picture, seeing it from God's perspective. And again, we've already thought about that, how important it is to... to we, we get so focused on the here and now and things that, yes, maybe are important on a day-to-day -day basis and do cause us stress and anxiety. It is so important to get that macro view, to realize that in the course of history, our lives and the life of humanity upon earth is just a speck in the vast expanse of eternity. And one day, Christ will come and he will reign and he will put all of the wrongs in this world to right. Nation will not rise up against nation anymore. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and the lion will lie down with the lamb and there will be peace and harmony righteousness and justice because the one who is just and the justifier will have come and this world will be put to right and because of all of that we can renew or we can have our strength renewed by waiting upon the lord they shall mount up with wings as eagles they shall run and not be weary they shall walk and not faint. I don't know if you've ever seen the, seen the film Chariots of Fire. I remember seeing it when I was younger. And it's a bit of a cheesy film. I'm sure there's things in it that didn't actually happen. But it's the story of Eric Liddell, that great Christian missionary who was an Olympic athlete in the 1920s, who ultimately went out to China and gave his life in the service of the gospel. But there's a scene in the film where apparently this is true. He was preaching in a church in Paris as he was waiting to go to the games. And in the film, this is the verse that he reads. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And it always gave me such goosebumps, goosebumps, just, just, just seeing him preach that and the power that was, that was conveyed there. But it is a powerful, it is emotive. It is, it is something that causes us to have strength and enjoyment and to be filled with joy and righteousness. And so in that very simple overview of the chapter of Isaiah chapter 40, as I said at the start, there is, there, there is so much more in there that I have done, that I, didn't do justice to. 
I just wanted to share with you something that I had been enjoying of the goodness of God and of all the reasons that we have to rejoice and take comfort and find encouragement and zeal in him. Thank you very much for listening. Sorry for going a couple of minutes over, but we'll just close in prayer and give thanks for the refreshments. Our Father, we come before thee and we give thee thanks for the time we've spent in thy word this evening. We thank thee for the opportunity that we have to study thy word together, to learn truth from it, to see pictures of Christ and of God, and to be encouraged and, and stirred up in our hearts that we have a great and mighty God who is worthy to be praised, and that we have a great Savior who was spotless and perfect, who knew no sin, but was made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And we have been brought into a position of sons through that. And for that, we are just so grateful. Help us to have a greater love and appreciation for the Lord Jesus as we go forward. Help us in our worship tomorrow morning to give praise and thanks to thee for him. We just pray as well for everyone that's here that they would be blessed and encouraged. For those who haven't been able to attend for whatever reason as well, we just pray for them. We pray for the assembly here that it might be built up and encouraged and strengthened in its love for the Lord and its unity for each other as saints of God. We just pray for this. And for now, for the, the food that has been prepared, we just do give thee grateful thanks in the precious and holy name of thy Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.